Worship is really at the heart of what it means to be a human being. Our origins are in a garden temple. Our redemption culminates in a heavenly song around a throne and we are worshipping Christ. In his reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis, prolific writer, says, All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favourite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favourite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, uh, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Now, you might not be able to identify with many of those, but you might be able to identify with one or two or others that are in your life. But have you ever wondered, why is it that the enjoyment of these things and many more doesn't really feel full until that experience is with other people? Until your memories include friends or family or others? Why is it that live music tends to be more powerful and connects us more easily to our emotions? Why is it that memories become more special with the people we love? You might have a memory of a sunset and it was extraordinary. Maybe it was in a special place, up a mountain, something like that. But being there on your own and appreciating it, sure, it has all kinds of beauty. It can be an extraordinarily special moment, but it is made all the more special when it's shared. Why is laughing more infectious when you're at a, a, a comedian's gig than it is when you're watching it on YouTube? If you were watching Kevin Bridges live, I'm sure you would find him even funnier than when you're on your own watching it on your phone at home. You're probably not roaring with laughter in quite the same way. Why is it that the atmosphere at a football game or a rugby game or some other kind of sporting event is so special? It's so special to be there. Why do we all want a ticket? Why is it that we all want to be there where the noise is and you can smell the smells and experience what it is to be at the match? I don't know why I went to smell the smells. <laughs> Maybe it's the pies for me, I don't know. <laughs> when I was a kid, I used to pretend that I was at the game when I was playing my Amiga 600, showing my age, I'm playing sensible soccer, and I made the crowd noises. Ah, yeah, come on. And it was like East Fife scoring in the Champions League final or something like that. But it, it doesn't quite compare, does it, to actually being there with all these thousands of people. Now I'm going to get some husband points. Lindsay's um, adjusting the lights. And I'm going to get some husband points, hopefully. You've got to listen to this one, Lindsay, okay? Um, the novelist Charlotte Bronte said, <laughs> Happiness, quite unshared, can scarcely be called happiness. It has no taste. Our desires reflect the way we are made. We worship in community. That's the pattern of Scripture, that we, are, that we gather 
to glorify God, and then we go to glorify God. In the temple, right at the beginning, in the garden, the first temple, Adam and Eve were walking with God in Eden, and they enjoyed him. It was a place of worship, of glorification of God. But they're called to go. They're called to push Eden's boundaries out. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. They were to build communities of worship. More people, more communities built to the glory of God. And then after the fall, God begins to show and reveal what his redemption plan was to look like. And in Genesis 12, we see that he calls Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, and he is to bless a nation, not just, he is, he is going to call out this nation, he's going to build a nation through Abraham, this old man, and instead of saying that only the nation was to be blessed, he said that the nations will be blessed, the whole earth, the whole world. Moses was instructed to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, and at the very centre of the camp was to be the tabernacle, and inside the tabernacle was to be the Ark of the Covenant. Worshipping God at the assembly and carrying this message to love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And it was not only to be done, not only to be expressed in the place of worship, but actually it goes on to say that that God wants this to be on their hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In every area of life, you have to bring glory to God. Israel failed to live up to this call, to live to God's glory time and time again. They fell short. And so the prophets warn Israel, return to God. But they also give Israel a promise of what's to come. God's glorifying existence, this kind of God-glorifying existence will finally be fulfilled through a Messiah. And one day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the, the sea. So in the same way that Adam and Eve experienced the glory of the Lord in that first temple in the garden, the whole earth, the new creation will become a temple, a place where we glorify God and find our meaning and our purpose once again. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, he lived to the glory of his Father in perfect unity with his Father. And he prays towards the end of his life that he would see his glory and live in perfect unity as he and the Father have lived in perfect unity for eternity, that he would return to his Father and that we too would share in that unity as we live in the world and not of it. So there's again, even now, we are to, he's praying that we're in the world and not of it. And in, that, in not being of it, we are expressing something together as a people of God gathered together and then we go into the world as ambassadors of Christ, of this Messiah. When Jesus dies, the curtain temple was torn in two between us and God and he destroys a dividing barrier between all people. We are saved in the church 
and called to join with people of all types. And Jesus ascends on high and he keeps his promise and he pours out the Holy Spirit and he fills his people as new temples, the new temple. Actually, it's important that we recognize that the language here is not just that we individually become temples of the living God, but actually we all become like living stones built together with Christ as the cornerstone into a temple of praise. There is a togetherness of what it means to dwell in God's presence. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. The writer of the Hebrews is very clear about his warning of those who are tempted not to continue to gather with the people of God and not to see the importance of this in the storyline of God's redemption. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How do we do that? By not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day approaching. In other words, the more that uh, we move on in time towards that great day when Jesus will return and make all things new, when this temple will be restored in the new creation, this perfect place of God-glorifying existence, we are to make sure that we're continuing to meet together in the presence of God and encouraging one another, helping each other to be ambassadors of Christ. So when we see the church as just another weekend option, we trash God's gospel purposes for a people who gather and go. The New Testament understanding of the church makes a solitary Christian an oxymoron. We are made to worship in rhythms of gathering and going. I'd love it if you have a Bible to turn to Acts chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 7 through 20. Acts chapter 20, 7 through 20, uh, sorry, 7 through 12. It says this, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight, but you're glad I'm not doing that too much. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we, where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. 
the trustees uh, might have had something to say about that, that day. I mean, who risk assessed that meeting, right? And uh, it's, a, it's a funny story and a relief, I think, for all preachers that even one of the greatest preachers of all time sent someone to sleep. Um, but the guy falls asleep during one of the world's um, greatest uh, preacher sermons, but he also falls asleep during a meeting that is probably quite ordinary. And actually, there's some things that we can observe here for what, what the ordinary meeting in the New Testament looked like about the pattern of worship in Treos and other churches. Verse 7, they met on the first day of the week, resurrection day. That was the norm for churches, to gather every Sunday. And by this time, um, we could see that that pattern had emerged and established. And then beyond that, we see again and again and again more examples of how this was a regular pattern. We meet together every resurrection day, every Sunday. And when they gathered, they gathered to break bread. We see that in verses 7 and 11. To share in the Lord's communion. And when they gathered, they sat under the teaching of God's word. And actually we can see in this example, it's a bit different to maybe what we might see, where there was what we would regard as a preach, but also some Q&A, some discussion around Scripture. And from the New Testament, other New Testament texts that we know of, we know that believers, uh, that we know that we know believers practiced and were devoted to prayer and singing worship at these meetings as well. So what I want to do is just do a whistle-stop tour of why each of these is vital to do as part of our weekly gathering and our ongoing rhythms. So you might think, man, why do we come here and we just do the same kind of rhythm, like the same kind of stuff every week? Now, we, there's not, I'm not saying that the Bible says we have, to, you know, we have to have two songs at the beginning and then we have to have like a little interview or something going on and then we have to have a preach. But what we are saying is that these elements that we have in our meetings are actually biblical elements and should be at the heart of our meetings when we get together. The first is sharing communion. Now, communion remembers. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, he does something extremely controversial. He leads his disciples through the Passover meal, and then he gets to a section where he says, do this in remembrance of, and he's not supposed to say me. He's not supposed to say that. They expected him to say something about the first Passover of God's rescue of his people from Pharaoh or the Passover lamb whose blood was smeared in the doorpost that the angel of death would pass over. But instead he says, me. Do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't maintain the tradition of thousands of years. Instead he says, do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus took the bread and he said, take and eat. And he took the cup of wine and he said, drink from it. Now, it's so easy to miss this because we are so used to the way that we do it. But Jesus reverses the normal way of religious worship here. So no longer do you come to worship with your offerings to God. Now you're invited to receive from God. Come to the table to receive. Nothing to prove Simply that your faith in Jesus 
that he has bled and died for you and given himself for you for the forgiveness of your sins is enough. He says, come, remember your sins are forgiven and enjoy the eternal benefits of what he has done for you. The source of satisfaction and joy given to you by his body, a bread that does not leave you hungry and his blood, the finest of wines to fill you with joy, peace and celebration. So communion remembers and it's vital that we do it regularly. Communion unites. Paul describes it to the Corinthians as a participation in him, in Christ. We come united to Christ, but we also come united to his people, to our brothers and sisters. There is one body of Christ and one bread to share. We are one people with one cup and our unity is on display when we are together at the communion meal. There's such beauty for us to enjoy as we get around the table, as we take the wine and the bread and celebrate communion. Communion also anticipates. So we come to break bread in anticipation of Jesus coming again. One day he will take his bride, us, you're his bride, okay? Man or woman in this room, you're his bride. And he adores you. And he can't wait for that day where there'll be a great wedding banquet, where we will feast, where we will shoulder, be shoulder to shoulder with all the saints and with all the angels, looking on and worshipping him while we are restored to our glorified, resurrected bodies. Communion is a foretaste of heavenly feasting. It's so important that we come not just to remember, not just to be united, but to look forward. The second thing that we see is that we receive teaching every week when we come to our gatherings on Resurrection Sunday. Now teaching, first thing I want to say about teaching is that it exalts Jesus. Teaching exalts Jesus. All of the Bible points to Jesus. As my daughter's Bible repeats, every story whispers his name. Then Jesus himself, he came teaching and preaching, proclaiming the good news. He was called teacher. He said it was the truth that will set us free. And then he called himself the truth, the embodiment of that truth. And so when we come and we hear preaching on a Sunday, you will notice there is not a Sunday that goes by where we don't talk about Jesus. And teaching gives life. It is God-breathed in the same way with which God spoke the world into creation. You want to receive life? You want more life? Come and receive from teaching and preaching. And the church was born when the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, wasn't it? Well, what's the first act? Peter preaches the gospel. He preaches from Scripture. And then we see later on that 2 Peter tells us that it is the knowledge that we find in Scripture that gives us everything we need for a godly life. Like the psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, we need to pray, Give me life according to your word. And teaching sustains. You feel tired. You might even be feeling tired right now. Like, 
man, I'm here again, I'm trying, but this is hard going. Well, the New Testament is filled with the reminders of the importance and centrality of preaching and teaching the Bible. Encouragements to be reminded of the gospel. Encouragements to honor teachers among us. Encouragements to preach in and out of season. And teaching resists. Teaching is something that Satan hates. Satan is the father of lies. And the only place that we can get whole truth and nothing but the truth is in God's word. It's as Ephesians 6 says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the same way that it is life-giving, it is death-defeating. It is sin-defeating. Want to resist the enemy and his ways and being adopted by the father of lies into injustice? and pain and shame across the city. Want to live like Jesus? Sit under his word in a radically different community that's preaching a different message, one where Jesus is at the very heart of it, where the gospel is changing lives, where we're seeing that there is another way, a better way, the only way to the truth, the only way to eternity, the only way to the life that will last forever. Sit under his word week in and week out and prioritize applying it above every other practice in your life. Don't be fooled by all those Instagram posts that tell you all these other things are more important. Your exercise regime's great. Your, your I don't know, self-improvement stuff is great. But in the end, all you need is Jesus and his ways. We need teaching. And we need to do it together because we need one another to teach too. Yes, we want to proclaim and preach through Scripture. Usually we do it verse by verse. Every so often we do these thematic uh, preaching series like this one. We're going to go into John in the new year and I can't wait for that. But... We also need one another to remind each other of what's been taught, to remind one another of what we've been reading in Scripture and to share it with one another. And it can't just happen in coffee shops. It's got to happen with amens in this room or wherever we're meeting. Third thing is that we sing worship. We didn't see it in that example in Treos, but we see it throughout the New Testament. So, hey... We experienced what it's like not to sing for a long time, didn't we? I did not enjoy that. I felt I was missing out on so much of what it meant to gather. And uh, poor Lindsay doesn't have to listen to my singing quite so loud anymore, which is good. She gets other voices. Singing reminds us of the truth. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Singing doesn't only bring truth, but actually singing helps us to minister that truth to one another. 
Paul says to the Ephesians, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. And there is this kind of spiritual battle taking place in which we can help one another, encourage one another, build one another up, help each other to be more robust as we sing truth over one another. Truth about who you now are in Christ. A son or a daughter, adopted, given full inheritance rights, who can face the world and all that the world is trying to bring you down with. And you can stand tall because you've stood tall together on a Sunday, belting out the glory of Christ's name over each one. God had Israel go out to battle in song. In 2 Chronicles 2.20, Jehoshaphat sent a choir ahead of the army to sing God's enduring love. This love that will last forever. It's part of the battle. The enemy cowers from our declarations in song. And singing declares our victory. Like Moses and Miriam led people in song immediately after the Red Sea parted and they got over onto the dry land. We sing now because the curtain has parted. Because we can enter into the presence of God. When we sing, the presence of God is with us. And we look to Christ, who is our victory, who has overcome death and Satan and sin. And we can know that we are righteous in God. We are his. We are his forever. And we can sing it together and sing it all the way to eternity and around his throne. And we pray together. We pray together. We pray. And when we pray, we praise when we're gathered together. Do you remember when Jesus was in the temple and one day he gets really angry, it's a righteous anger, and he gets out the whips and he starts driving out sellers. And he's driving them out because he says, it is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer. And so as God's temple, we need to be people filled with prayer. What are we filling ourselves with? We need to be filling ourselves with prayer. What do you need Jesus to drive out in you? What is robbing you from the life-giving power of, the, of spirit-filled prayer? What fills you up that means prayer has become dry and dull? Let's see it driven out with prayer and prayer with one another. And prayer changes things. Beginning in Jerusalem, it's part of how every revival you can ever read about begins. God's people pray and they cry out to God, sometimes for decades. And then God comes and he saves and he transforms whole communities. That's what we saw in Lewis all those years ago here in Scotland. And my prayer is that just like that couple of late, those, those ladies who prayed diligently together for so many years for those islands, that we would have people maybe even sitting in this room who hear God's call to become prayer warriors, who hear God's call to 
to pray diligently, to persist in prayer, and to pray for this city, this city that right now is struggling, and it needs a touch of God. That we would see the need, and we would cry out for our city. And that one day we would see revival come to Glasgow. And we pray because prayer brings healing. Time and time again in the New Testament, people are prayed for, uh, like this young man who fell from the third floor and are healed. When we are sick, James instructs us to go to the elders for the laying on of hands and prayer. We also know that prayer doesn't only heal physically, but it heals emotionally, relationally, spiritually. And we have a pattern of regular prayer here at Glasgow Grace because, and, and honestly, we want to increase in that because we know that without prayer, without this, dependence conversa- this dependent conversation, which is what prayer really is, that we have nothing. We need God's help in every single way. And prayer must be the heart of what we do. So I just want to remind you of a few things that we do. Half an hour before every gathering, half past ten um, on a Sunday morning, we meet and we pray. And I think it's just been wonderful to see that, that group grow and grow and grow. And um, I find that such a helpful moment just to be like, ah, this is why we're here. This, like, no matter how busy it is, no matter how many speakers blow, like, we are here and we're here for a purpose, and that purpose is all defined by Jesus. This is his church. So come, come half past ten Sundays. And we give an opportunity to receive prayer almost every Sunday at the back, and there's an opportunity for that today. Um, And you, you may find that difficult to kind of take a step of faith, to go up to the back and receive prayer. But if you want prayer for anything, can I encourage you that there is a prayer team here every Sunday um, who are ready to pray for you. We pray together at every Grace community, but we also try and have a focus on prayer once every four weeks. And Grace communities, for those of you who don't know, are midweek groups meeting homes across the city. There's six of them, three in the south, three in the north. And then on the first Friday of every month, we meet to pray at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I know it's early, and I know it's difficult. But it's worth it. It's worth it. Come and pray. These are really intimate prayer meetings. Um, We find that uh, these are really fruitful. People come. There's often some prophetic, um, and uh, there's it's a kind of worship. There's a worshipful feel. There's a kind of a a sense of anticipation that that God's going to move that has been growing. Um, So if you want to be part of that, hey, come be a part of that. Seven a.m. At the moment we're meeting at Matty Mo's, but be great to outgrow much as we love Matty Moe's uh, hospitality in Finiston, um, we'd love to outgrow that and to see more and more people come along. All right. We are made to worship together in community, to gather. And our destination is a glorious gathering of worshippers around the throne of God. That is, that is our destination. If that doesn't excite you, then you've got to pray some more, okay? Because that That is our destination. That's where we're going. That's what should thrill us. And on Sundays and in Grace Communities throughout the week, we are experiencing some of that joy to come because we get what God has done for us through Jesus on the cross. And we come and we build one another up 
and we send one another out and anticipate the coming of Jesus. We do it weekly because we see the rhythms of the New Testament church of gathering and going. Gathering on Resurrection Day each week, every Sunday, celebrating that we've become alive in him. And we come and we break bread and we receive teaching and we sing and we pray. Practices that I hope do not ever become boring to you because we see what they truly are no matter how we're feeling or how repetitive they might seem. Because God is in our midst and through them he is being revealed. So let's do it. Let's do this gathering and going rhythm. Let's commit to making it a priority to be here on a Sunday, not just another weekend option, but a real priority in your life. As we look to show the world a little glimpse by our gatherings of something way better when we finally see him face to face and worship him in his throne room.